0: Hey, hope you're having a, uh, a good week. If you're a guest with us, my name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. And we're glad that you're here this morning. I want to encourage you to stop by the information tables out in the lobby, grab some info about New Hope and how to get better connected. We say this all the time, and I'll probably say it until I die, ministry is not about what takes place on a stage. And so when you come into this place, we don't want you to suffer silently. We don't want you to deal with issues alone. We want to link arm in arm, and we want to walk through life with you as we chase after Jesus. You heard Matt say numerous different times this morning already, we want to be disciples making disciples. That's our goal, and we want to invite you to be a part of that. So a few weeks ago, we launched into this sermon series that's going to push us further in our journey of discipleship, and we're calling it Kingdom Life. And in this series, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus. It's in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up and get there, or turn your Bible, uh, your app on, and open it up to Matthew chapter 5. And what's going on with the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is sitting on the side of this hill. And he's surrounded by a very um, diverse group of people. And many people that were sick and suffering. Many people that had just been healed prior to this sermon by Jesus. Many people that were uh, well off financially. Others that were poor. Many people experiencing difficulty. Other people just curious about this guy Jesus and they want to hear this teaching. And Jesus begins to preach this sermon about the kingdom of God what it means to enter the kingdom, how that's available to everybody, and how once you're in the kingdom, it begins to change your life and your heart. He's giving them a blueprint for a better life. He's saying this is the better life that you need to be chasing after. He never says it's going to be easy, but he does say this is what will lead to a better life. You see, his point is it's not just waiting for heaven. God wants to transform and change your life right here and right now, and he begins to lay out this blueprint for that in this sermon. The problem we have is that when we hear some of these things, many of us have a very different vision for our life. Many of us, we rely on our own instincts, our own gut reactions, our own understanding, our own wisdom, our own uh, past experiences to interpret our present reality. And we just lean onto those things to try to get us through. Many of us have a different vision for our life than Jesus has for our life. Now, I'm not much of a marksman. A lot of the guys in this church will tell you, no, he's not. He's not much of a marksman. But I do know this. You will hit the target that you're aiming at, and it's not the target's fault when you don't. If you're you're aiming at a target, you're probably going to hit that target, and the target's not moving when it comes to Jesus and spirituality, it's that our aim is off, and that's what Jesus is trying to say, let me readjust your aim, you're aiming for the wrong target. And, And so Jesus starts out and he begins to talk about anger, and we talked about that last week. And after Jesus talked about anger, we looked at it from the perspective of James chapter 1, verse 19, and we kind of looked at that passage, and we looked at what Jesus said, and we came up with this conclusion, right, that to deal with our anger, it's a progressive verse in James 1.19. It says, be quick to listen, and be slow to speak, and you'll be slow to become angry. And we talked about how when we're quick to listen, and we choose wisely what we're going to say, rarely do we actually battle anger. God knew what he was talking about, Right? But many of us, we, we hear that and we walk out of here and we begin to live our life and we begin to still battle anger and we wonder, God, why haven't you taken my anger away? God, you're not taking my anger away. You're supposed to just take this away from me. And if I, if I were God, which you should be glad that I'm not, I would look at you and I would say, well, your, your life is perfectly suited to get the results for the target you're aiming at. Why are you surprised you still battle anger? You're not quick to listen. Rarely are you slow to speak. And now you're struggling with anger and you're wondering why. You see, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is the results we're getting out of our life, they are perfectly suited for the things that we're chasing with our life. Jesus' goal with the Sermon on the Mount is to readjust our aim. It's to make sure that we're shooting at the right target. And so he talked about anger last week. We're going to shift our attention. We're going to talk about sex this week. Now, that's always an interesting thing to say out loud. I love watching your reactions. Some of us were like, oh, sex, don't look up. All right, and... That's what happens in our churches a lot of the time. But Jesus shifts his attention. He says, this is the target you should be aiming at when you think about sex. This is the target you should be aiming at when you think about sexuality and morality and how they tie together. This is the target you should be aiming at. Don't be surprised when you get results aiming at a different target. So he launches in, in verse 27 of chapter 5, he says this, you have heard that it was said, meaning you've been told for your whole life aim at this target. You shall not commit adultery. He that's the target you've heard that it was said that you should be aiming at. Do not commit adultery. Now, before we kind of explore the depths of that particular verse, I think it's going to be helpful for us to understand uh, a proper view of sex in general. Because what happens when we're in church and we begin to discuss this, a lot of different things come in. There are a lot of different factors. There are extreme positions that are taken when it comes to talking about this, this topic of sex. The first one that I've seen throughout my experience in church and really looking at church history is that the church begins to take this position of sex out of fear of violating this verse and many others like it, and they begin to say, well, sex is gross, and we're not going to talk about sex. It's this gross subject, don't talk about it. Now, how do I know that that's a sentiment that we can kind of relate to? Because when I said we're gonna talk about sex, many of you literally squirmed in your seat. Others wanted to squirm because you were uncomfortable, but you thought I better not because he's gonna think I'm squirming. Some of you might need to go to the bathroom. You're like, well, forget that. I'm not going to the bathroom for the rest of the service because he's gonna think something's up. You see, sex is a very difficult thing to talk about in church because we viewed it as this thing that's gross. And so when we battle sex, what we've done is create a culture by our refusal to talk about it, We've created a culture of silent suffering. And so people that are overly exposed to sexual material all week, it's in, our, it's in our reading material, it's on television, it's in the movies, it's on the Internet, it's everywhere in our culture. And people can begin to battle with sex, and then they come to church looking for answers, but the church has taken a stance of saying, "Hey, we don't talk about that. Just go control yourself." Just just go control yourself. So then we've created this culture where people suffer silently or they try to control themselves and they can do it for so long until they fail and fail and fail. And then they begin to carry a, a false sense of guilt that they were never intended to carry. And so the, the church's stance historically, not all churches, but a lot of churches, their stance has been that sex is gross, let's not talk about it. The other extreme though is what our culture would say about sex. Now, here's what, let me, disclaimer, you can't simply blanketly say culture. There are so many different cultures in our world. There are so many different uh, views, but the culture by and large that we find ourselves in in the world today and many uh, cultures previous to our current culture would line up perfectly with this. They say sex isn't gross. They say sex is God. So sex isn't just something that you never talk about. Sex is something that you fully embrace. I mean, it's everywhere. It's unavoidable. It's so common that the true meaning of sex, the real understanding of sex is lost. In this pursuit of personal pleasure and desire. And we get so wrapped up in pursuing our own pleasures and desires. It's affected TVs, movies, reading, our poor teachers and professors on our campuses telling us just pursue pleasure. Just pursue it. Give into it. You're going to find out more about yourself. You're going to find the true meaning of yourself. You got people living false lives, they're living out these false truths, these false uh, understandings of sex. And they begin to live them out. you got people saying, well, I can't, I can't just uh, marry somebody and then have sex. I've got to know if sex is going to work between the two of us, To which I've always told people that like, say that to me. Literally, they've said that. I've said, hey, are you a man? Are you a woman? Guess what? It'll work. All right? I promise. There's just this view that you have to engage in it as soon as possible to better understand your relationship. Now, what happens when we begin to view sex as God, as this thing that we have to embrace and enjoy, this friends with benefits culture that we live in, what happens when we embrace that is our morality begins to slide. And I could talk forever about the different byproducts of a morally focused culture that's just focused on your desires and personal pleasures. But I'm going to just give you one example. What happens when we begin to view sex as God, something that we have the right to engage in in any way that we want to engage in it, is we begin to believe lies like sex is just physical, and I can enjoy sex without any emotional attachment or carrying any baggage from my sexual life into, into my next relationship. The previous relationships won't have any effect on me. Sex is just physical. But most of us would agree that sex can never be just physical. It's so much more than just being physical. But Andy Stanley's a preacher in Atlanta, and he uses a series of questions to prove to us that sex cannot just be physical. You cannot view it as this physical thing and elevate it to a place in your life where you're pursuing your pa- passions and pleasures at any cost. He asks the, this series of questions. If sex is just physical, why is it then? that when a child is sexually abused, and then when they're adult, an adult and they try to connect the dots, why is it so difficult for them to overcome? It's not simply that an authority figure betrayed me. It's so much deeper than that, and they carry that, that pain and that suffering with them through so much difficulty. Why is rape so much more harmful to a woman than simply being beaten up? Statistically speaking, women will report physical abuse far more often than they will ever report rape. Because it's not just physical. There's an emotional damage that takes place. Why is adultery so hard to shake when you're married and there's physical adultery that takes place? Why is that so hard to overcome if sex is just this physical thing? Why is it that men with the deepest sexual issues usually have or have had uninvolved or missing fathers? Why is it that most people's greatest regrets are usually sexual in nature? Why is that the case? Why do most people suffer and go through difficult... So, So when people come in as a minister, people come in and they want to talk all the time, almost all the time, when somebody leads in with this statement, hey, I've never told anybody this before, but they never say, I cheated on the test in 10th grade. I said it. It's never that simple. Every time they come in and say, hey, I've never told anybody this before in my life, but it's almost always sexual in nature. Why? Why is it such a difficult thing if it's just a physical thing that we do? It's not that big a deal. Stop obsessing over it. Just engage in it. Just go find your true identity. If it's just a physical thing, it wouldn't carry so much weight. The problem is when we're aiming at the wrong target, when we're not aiming our life after this kingdom life, the problem that comes with that is that we want to define our morality by chasing our feelings. And this is a cultural landslide that affects each of us. We want to define our morality based on our feelings, but the problem is we can never define our morality based on our feelings. If we could, we wouldn't be able to tell anybody that what they're doing is wrong. You wouldn't be able to look at history and say, hey, what the Nazis did was wrong because their number one defense for what they did was we thought it was right. It felt good. It felt right, so that's why we did it. And who are you to tell us that we're wrong? There is a higher moral standard by which all men must be held accountable. Sex cannot just be physical. You see, the proper view of pleasure, the way that God intended pleasure to be, the proper view is a byproduct of healthy morality, not the other way around. Your morality doesn't come after you get pleasure. Your pleasure is a byproduct of you getting morality and chasing Jesus the proper way. So this brings us to this third stance. Sex isn't gross, according to God. It's not God. The Bible says, actually, that sex is good. In the Bible, there's some incredible passages that when you're reading in your English translation, they're not accurate because most translators are scared because in Hebrew, there are little, there are little verbs and, and words that they, when translated accurately, they don't mean caress and they don't mean cuddle and they don't mean hug. They mean other things. And it gets intense in your Old Testament and throughout your Bible. Why? Why is that? Because God is celebrating godly sexuality. And when we study the real meaning of these words, what we learn, what I've learned in studying these words... Because I was shown when I first became a Christian that sex was gross. And then I looked at the world and said, Sex is God. And now I'm looking at Scripture and it's like, No, actually, it's neither one of these. Sex is good. What I'm learning is that quite often in my life, I was ashamed of something that God was never ashamed of. He wasn't ashamed to create it, He wasn't ashamed to rejoice in it, and He wasn't ashamed to declare it to be good. Our problem is that we don't understand God made sex, sex is a good thing. It's not only for procreation, though it is for procreation. It's not only for pleasure, though the Bible says it also is for pleasure. Ultimately, the point of sex is to point us back to our creator. It's to give us a heavenly perspective. It's to point us back to the one who said, this is good and my good and perfect gift for you. Our problem is we need to stop being ashamed of something God's not ashamed of. But we also need to protect ourselves and be very careful not to begin to worship something that God never worships. God never worships this idea of sex. And so Jesus launches in and he says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And you remember what Jesus is doing with this. He's not referring to the Old Testament. When Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a reference to the Old Testament. It's a reference to the popular interpretation of that Old Testament command. The Old Testament says, do not commit adultery. And the popular interpretation was, aim at this target, the target that says, don't physically cheat on your spouse. And if, as long as you behave that way, then everything else is good. You're fine. As long as you behave this certain way. And Jesus comes along and he's going to say, no, but I say to you something different. So the word he uses when he says adultery literally means sex outside of covenant. In the strictest form, it means when you enter into a covenant, sex is only for two people that are in the covenant of marriage. One man, one woman in marriage forever. That's the only thing the Bible says that sex is okay for. But it also says inherent in that command is that sex without a covenant at all is also wrong so it's not just violating adultery is not just violating the covenant you're in it's also behaving as though you have a covenant when you really don't and so two people that aren't married two people that haven't entered the covenant participating in sexual activity the bible would say that's adultery that's wrong jesus wants to peel back the layers of this though and he begins to say, sexual, be- sexual holiness is not only about sexual behavior, it's about the condition of your heart. And so for so long you've been aiming at this target that says, behave this way, but I say to you, you've been aiming at the wrong target. The target, the real target's not moving, I just need to help you adjust your aim. So he continues in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says, hey, it's not just about the physical act of sex, it's about lust as well. And the word he uses for lust here, when you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you can substitute woman for man, when you struggle with looking at somebody with lustful intent, the word he uses is epithumia. I want you all to say that with me, epithumia, one, two, three, epithumia, half of you are still awake, that's good, all right, here's what it literally means that I want to pursue and put my sexual desires over and above my commitments. It's saying fulfilling my desire is more important than fulfilling my commitment. I don't care if it hurts other people. I don't care if other people have to suffer because right now I'm so overcome with passion and desire that I'm going to give in to that passion and desire, and it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else because in this moment, right here, right now, all that matters is me and what I want. Now, a couple things to notice about this idea of lusting after Somebody in your heart, Jesus never, Jesus keeps apart and never brings together the idea of thinking, right and lusting. He keeps them separate. Thinking's not where the sin takes place. Recognizing beauty is not sinful. For somebody to say that's a beautiful person, or somebody to say that's a good, that's a beautiful woman, that's a good-looking man, that's not sinful. In fact, a lot of times we've heard that that is sinful. And we're only supposed to say the only attractive person is my spouse. So that's garbage. And that's ridiculously hard to live up to. It's just not realistic. To recognize beauty, what happens is when we take it beyond recognizing beauty and we begin to objectify bodies. And Jesus says when you recognize beauty, that's a good thing. God created beauty. When you begin to objectify that person, never knowing them, never, and you begin to view them not as a created person that God created in his image, a child of the king. You begin to view them as an object of your own thought life so you can fulfill your fantasies. That's when you begin to lust. One professor said it this way, epithumia does not refer to the first look. The first look can simply be attraction. It refers to the second look and beyond. The second look and beyond, they're leering, and they begin to objectify the person's body. Lust does not value a person, but merely the body parts. Now, the other thing I want you to know about this is that um, in my experience in ministry, this verse, there are a lot of women, and a lot of the women in the room will relate to what I'm about to say. That would say, hey, I don't lust after the body like men do. That's not my struggle. I'm not struggling. So this that hey, this doesn't apply to me. Wrong. You're not off the hook. You don't get to nudge the husband, look over at him, yeah, this is for you, preach it to the guys. I love this preacher. Right? You you don't get to do that. That is not what you get to do. Because epithemia can mean the lust after the body, but it can also mean a lust after a persona. It doesn't only mean the lust after a body. It can mean to lust after a persona. While some women don't lust after a body, they do lust after certain male characteristics and persona. Think uh, romance novels and chick flicks. All right? Really, think about it romance novels and chick flicks. Romance novels and chick flicks do for for women some of the very same things that pornography does for men. Right? It instills these neurological pathways in our brain that are so difficult to overcome that many people, many scientists have said do the same thing to your brain. that heroin does. It creates an addiction for these things. Now, you might be saying, how in the world? How does that work? Many many people use chick flicks and romance novels to lust after a feeling that you have, that you desire. It might be a feeling that you're not getting at home. I don't know. But either way, you're lusting after these characteristics that you wish were a part of your life that aren't. There's no commitment there. There's no covenant there. There's no mutual feelings there. It's not a real picture of reality. You're just lusting after something that you don't have. You're using a novel or a movie or a show to fantasize after a feeling because why? Because feelings feel good. Those feelings actually feel good in the moment. And you don't just have to lust after a body, you can lust after a persona. Now, some of you might say, well, here's the deal, man. I don't look at pornography, I don't read those kind of novels. I don't watch chick flicks at all, or shows, none of them, so I must not struggle. Well, here's the deal. Have you ever looked at somebody else's marriage and thought, I wish my husband or wife were more like so-and-sos, or I wish that my marriage looked more like so-and-sos, because if if that persona was true in my marriage, my life would be better. You're lusting. There's no reality there. There's no mutual commitment there. You see, the difference is one is mental, and you're mentally pursuing characteristics. The other is visual, visual, and you're overcome by desire, by looking at certain things and looking at people or looking at a screen, and you're struggling with this lust, this epithumia, this desire, and you're giving in to this lust. They're both lust. They both display an unhealthy appetite for sexual desire. They both do. It's an unhealthy appetite for something other than God. C.S. Lewis in the 1940s, he did a radio series um, on sexuality and it became a very popular radio series. And he used this illustration. He said, suppose you go to another country and when all the guys graduate high school, they go into their dorms. And when they go into their dorm rooms um, on these college campuses, they hang these posters up on the wall. These posters are just vivid and colorful and they pop off the wall and, and everybody comes in and looks at them. And when you look at it, there's this vivid, colorful picture of food right it's a cheeseburger or or a piece of bacon sizzling right or or a piece of cake red velvet if you will right it's the best cake there is or sugar cream pie in indiana so you, all these things and so all the guys are going into each other's dorm rooms and they're like oh look at that food that's incredible oh that's so good that's so awesome or suppose the guys go to a club at night and there's low lit the, the lighting's low and the music's sensual and there's something on the stage and, and, and it begins to get revealed to the rhythm of the music and as soon as this, this uh, it's revealed and the, and the tarp is pulled back, what you see is a blooming onion and you're just like, oh, that's incredible and everybody starts screaming, yeah, that's so awesome. And they pull out money and they sh- shove it under the plate and it's just this <laughs> desire for food, right? Or suppose people are sitting in their rooms and they're watching. Um, videos of food being put together. You're watching the Food Network, and you're sitting there watching it, and you're craving it, and someone walks in the room, and you turn off the TV real quick and say, I wasn't watching that, right? If you walked into this culture, what would you conclude about these people? We're all laughing about it, right? You'd conclude, one, they're pretty hungry. (laughs) Only to find out, no, they're not hungry. They're gluttons. They've been eating like crazy forever. Then the only conclusion you would have is that something is deeply disordered about this people's appetite for food. And the same thing is true about our appetite for sex and personal satisfaction. We have an unhealthy push toward it. The deeper we allow something to affect our soul, the harder it is to clean up the mess. Here's the point. God gave sex to us as a blessing in marriage. It's a curse everywhere else. God gave sex to us as a blessing in the marriage covenant. Everywhere else, sex is a curse. So, if you're single, what does this mean? What well, means you wait? You wait. Things aren't necessary that God withholds. When He's withholding it, it's obviously not necessary. It'll come in time. But what happens is you begin to push your desire toward this kingdom life, toward this king, and you chase after Him, and you begin to realize my desires, my sexual desires and supposed needs are under my control. I'm not under their control. If you're married, what does it mean for you? It means work on the covenant. Nothing creates greater intimacy like greater commitment. Greater commitment. Sex is one of the most potentially joy giving and potentially damaging realities in our lives because sex, it's at the core of who we are. And it points us to a greater joy, which is God. It's Jesus. And Jesus is telling us that kingdom life is an intentional thing. It's about guarding our hearts. We can't be silent about sex. We can't be passive about sex. We can't suffer silently about sex. We have to do our part. And while God is in the business of transforming our hearts, he calls us to play part in that. It's poor theology to say that you just wait around until God fixes everything. If you wonder why you're not getting the results that you want and you're still suffering with struggling with these sexual desires, you've got to ask yourself, what are you aiming at? Because your life is perfectly suited to get the results of the target that you're aiming at. And so Jesus continues. says, So because of this whole reality, he says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now please note, as tempting as it is to tell teenagers, that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. He is not saying to literally cut your hand off and gouge your eye out. There, there's been times where I want to look at, like, teenage boys, and I want to say, it's exactly what he meant, so watch out. I'm telling you. I'm cut your God's intent was not for you to roll into heaven as a bloody stump. That's not the goal, Right? We look at that. It's not a a literal thing, right? And many people believe it is. And that's why when you go to different cultures, if they catch a thief, what do they do? They cut his hands off. Why do they do that? Because they believe that if you get rid of the body part that produced the sin, then the sin will be gone as well. And Jesus is saying that's not the truth. Jesus is using what's called reduction ad absurdum. It means reducing an argument to its logical absurdity to its logical absurdity. He's attacking the notion that sin resides in the offending body part. He's actually going against that. He's saying it's so much more than just behaving a certain way. It's about the condition of your heart. It's about aiming at the right target. What he's illustrating here is that we need to be willing to do what is necessary to distance ourselves from our struggles. Will it be easy? No, it'll probably be very difficult. But he's looking at this audience and he's saying, sex is going to be such a big temptation for some of you more than others. Some of us, you realize that the earliest people begin to uh, really struggle with pornography is 11 years old. You used to have to work to be exposed to this horrible material. Now it's in your fingertips, attached to your smartphone. It's a portal into a world of pornography and struggling. This is the world that we're up against. And Jesus is saying, you have to put the effort into distancing yourself from your struggles. So some of us, that means get rid of the smartphone altogether. Oh, man, I can't do that. I've got to check emails. Figure out a different way to check emails. Figure out a different way to do the things that your phone does. Just figure it out. Do what's necessary. That's what Jesus is saying here. Go to the extreme. Make those decisions. Make those provisions to guard your heart from becoming victim to the target that you're currently aiming at. I love the way that Ben Stewart says this. Um, he is a, a minister to college students, and we took a group to the Passion Conference, and thousands of college students and he stands up there and he's he's done ministry to college age kids for years and he's talking about the boys the college age guys and he says I sh- these guys are struggling with pornography and they're they're having so much access to this that it's destroying their lives and so as we begin to discuss this i always ask him hey tell me about is it a problem with your phone and they're almost all the time they say yeah man, it's just right there say, so so where do you put your phone when you go to bed at night? they say, oh man i keep i plug it in keep it right by my bed and he's thinking what and so he says to them When you go to bed at night, that is your most vulnerable, intimate moment. That is your weakest moment right before you fall asleep. And you're going to keep a portal to pornography, which is your ultimate struggle right now, right next to your bed. What is wrong with you? And then they reply, oh, man, you don't understand. I need to be able to do this and that. He said, But here's the deal. It's my alarm clock. And he looks at him and he yells, buy an alarm clock. Get an alarm clock. What are you doing? Get this away from you. You're playing with fire, and more and more you play with fire, the more and more likely you are to get burned. One of my earliest memories with my little brother was we're at this bonfire. I don't remember why, but it's this giant big bonfire. And there was this glass bottle, this glass beer bottle, sitting in the fire. My brother wanted to grab it, and he was told, don't touch it. So what did he do? He grabbed it, and he burned his hand severely, and he had to go to the hospital. And I come from a long line of really intelligent men. Uh, So he grabbed the bottle... (laughs) couple like months later he's all healed up and what does he do he sees an iron on no joke my mom walks away from the iron my brother's like i wonder if that's hot and he burns the same hand okay he he heals up he burns himself again and has to go get it fixed why you touch hot things you get burned it's the way it works you play with fire you're going to get hurt and that's what jesus is saying right here the more and more you entice yourself the more and more you leave yourself vulnerable the more and more likely you are to get the results that you're getting from your life. Don't be surprised when life falls apart. And so what do we do walking away from here? I mean, there's a million things you can say about uh, dealing with lust and dealing with uh, the potential that lust would ultimately lead you to adultery and how it can't just be behavioral. It has to be the changing of your heart. And so let me give you just two things. The first one is this. Make a distinction. Please make a distinction between a thought and lust. There's a difference. Celebrating beauty, celebrating beauty is not wrong. Celebrating godly characteristics in other people is not wrong. It's what you do with those thoughts that creates the sin that you get so entangled in. I love the way Martin Luther said it. You can't avoid your thoughts. You can't avoid the birds flying around your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. You cannot avoid the birds flying around your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. And I know what you're thinking. Well, just shave your head. No, you, uh, you, can't, you can prevent your thoughts from setting up shop and ruining your life. You do Stop being passive. Don't kid yourself. You cannot prevent all the thoughts, but you can prevent them from setting up shop. I love what one author said. He said this. When it's just me against the lust, the odds are always against me. Whatever it is that has its hooks in you, you will never be free until you find something that you want more. It's not about ridding ourselves of desire. It's about giving ourselves to a bigger and better and more powerful desire. Ultimately, ultimately, overcoming lust is about not just ridding yourself of lust, but replacing lust with a desire and a love for Jesus because of what he's done for you. So the more you chase after him and live this kingdom life, the more you keep those desires in check. But you will never experience freedom by simply trying to behave better. You have to be transformed brings me to the second thing. You can't heal a wound by pretending it isn't there. You can't heal a wound by pretending it isn't there. Some of you are carrying guilt and shame because of a sexual past. And that guilt and shame, if you're in Christ, God is saying, my son died for that. Give it up. If you're in Christ, Jesus is saying, I want to make you new more and more every day. I want to take this guilt and shame and give you a better life but you're aiming at the wrong target and for so for some of you that means that you got to get into a discipleship group you got to stop trying to do this on your own you got to link arms with your brothers and sisters in christ and stop faking it stop faking it till you make it stop showing up on sunday morning and pretending to do church and then walking out of here and failing miserably week after week And stop not having somebody to confess to. Get an accountability partner. Begin to confess your sins and experience the healing that God promises he'll do for you. Stop viewing your reality separate from his promises and bring the two together. But stop being passive and do what you need to do. Elizabeth Elliot tells this story. I love this. She tells the story of a king who goes into his village to visit his subjects. And as he's walking around, everybody knew this king is this magical great king. And so he's walking around, and he he comes across this beggar who has nothing but a bowl of rice. And as the king walks by, the beggar holds up the bowl, uh, asking the king for something. But to his astonishment, the king says, actually, I want something from you. And the beggar, just kind of taken aback by that, is like, whoa, okay. And he pulls out three grains of rice and puts it in the king's hand, out of his bowl. And the king says, thank you, and goes on his way. When the beggar looks back down into his bowl, he finds three small golden nuggets. And he thinks to himself, oh, I wish I would have given him more. You see, true freedom from our past, where we don't carry our guilt, but we we walk in the newness of life that Jesus promised us, comes from giving more and more up to him. Stop carrying your mistakes. They're not yours to carry. Jesus died for them. And if you want the life that he has promised you that you can have, you've got to ask yourself, what am I aiming at? Because your life is perfectly suited to continue getting the results from the target that you're currently aiming at. So my question to you is, do you want your future to simply be more of your past? Or do you want the new life that he's promised you? Let's pray.